Hey, fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots, Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Hey, don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10th through 12th, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA 7's International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top International 7's teams to the American Stop on the World Series circuit. It's three days of thrilling action. Go to USA7's.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA 7's. Presented by Stations Casinos, the LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers 7s and 15s playing opportunities for all levels. Go to LVIRugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA 7s deals and special rates on Stations Casinos Hotels. Once again, go to LVIRugby.com for details. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge is now available for pre-order at GameStop and the store at GameShark.com. Order now and get a free t-shirt with pre-orders. Games Radar says the game looks fantastic and plays smoothly. A long time coming and worth the wait. Get your copy today and get the game hailed by Gamer Fusion as a great experience. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge offers an unrivaled Xbox 360 rugby experience. Featuring 93 teams and 31 stadiums, online leaderboards, in-game Dolby Digital, and multiplayer voice chat. Buy now and be among the first to play this acclaimed game and get a free rugby t-shirt. Check out GameStop, GameShark.com, and check out the ad on our main page at RugbyMag.com for more. This is Rugamatrix America. Welcome everybody, this is Alex Goff, Editor-in-Chief of RugbyMag.com, joined as always by Bruce McLean and Pat Clifton, and... Uh, Guys, we, we have a, a pretty exciting guest for us this week. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, it's costing me uh, 30 bucks to be here. I, I had to pay a teammate to change my tire for me because it just went flat on my way back to the office. But uh, other than that, I'm doing great. Excited to talk about Dave, about the pack, and about uh, Eagles going forward. Does he believe that you're, uh, you actually have something to do, or does, does he really think that you just don't know how to change a tire? Um, you know, that's kind of irrelevant because he's changing it either way. So I'll okay. just pretend that he's giving me the credit. Okay, good, good. And and Bruce, what's up? I'm doing well in New York. It's beautiful here, and I am I am uh, actually going to go to lunch with Luke Milton today, guy who kicked the the kick to win our 2008 championship. He just recently got married, and he's back in New York. So I'm I'm pretty excited to go see him, and and it should be a good day. And his wedding was beautiful, so I'm gonna uh, be nice to see those guys. Excellent. Awesome. Well, we have a great guest here this week, and and uh, Dave Hodges, uh, for those of you who really haven't been uh, co- uh, paying attention to rugby uh, past the last uh, five or six years, you, you might not know exactly how much uh, Dave means to uh, the Eagles and, and what they've done in, in the early part of the 2000s and late 90s. And uh, Dave was captain of the Eagles 28 times, I believe, uh, over 50 caps. And probably one of the toughest uh, players to ever put on a USA jersey and captained them through the 2003 World Cup, where they also won a game just as they did in this previous World Cup. And they also almost won two 
losing to Fiji 19 to 18. Sorry to remind you about that, Dave. But uh, Dave Hodges, who is now in charge of the forwards for the USA uh, national team, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. It's good to be on. And and Dave, first of all, you've you've played in World Cups and you've now coached in World Cups. And, and what was the experience like for you in New Zealand this time? Uh, well, I'd say it's probably always better to play. And, and uh, that was – but um, second to that, the uh, – two things really strike me is that the first one was the endeavor of our players. And, uh, I think everyone was pretty complimentary in that, that front, um, across the world, even, um, you know, execution wise, we, we missed a few things here and there, um, at times that, that other teams were able to take advantage of, but I think no one could question the endeavor and, um, was pretty happy with that. And then secondly, in terms of the, the overall World Cup, was the, uh, the the acceptance of the people of New Zealand and the welcoming arms that everyone from you know all the different places we went from where we started off in little town in Wanganui to where we ended in Nelson, um, the, uh, the 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 passion they brought to hosting the World Cup was. Um, really, I mean, I've been to three now, and um, obviously they're head and shoulders above all the other ones. And, and Australia was pretty good too. I mean, they were they were um, excited to host it, but New Zealand was far and above um, much more passionate about their hosting of the World Cup. Dave, you talked about the uh, endeavor of your players, and I think, uh, as you said, that's something everybody's kind of complimented on. Going into this thing, um, now that there wasn't maximum effort, because there always is, but the defense wasn't exactly it wasn't exactly a highlight, um, and the defense, especially that of your pack, um, guys like Todd Clever, Louis Stanfield, John Vandergeesen, was just uh, really remarkable. Mike McDonald, I don't want to drop, you know, forget anybody in there, but it, as a whole, was really really great. And I asked this question to Mike if he was surprised how well the guys really played um, uh, defensively there, especially backed up against their goal line, but. How about you? Were you surprised with that, or did you know all along that they had it in them? I think we we knew they had it in them, and we were happy that it came out at the right time. Now, um, I think the history of this team has been that the more we're together, the better we play. And, and, and typically, obviously, in World Cup years, um, that's been the case uh, probably right from 2003 to this one. So I think that's part of it is um, – getting everybody together and on the same page and it's been part of our mo throughout the 2000s and, and uh so i think that certainly has a has a lot to do with it and being able to work um our strategy with the same group of guys and then getting those repetitions in was was really helpful and um i think i heard mike touch upon um the fact that we were able to work on our set piece defense a lot more as well which um certainly contributed to a better performance that regard. Is there a, uh, was there a good cop, bad cop situation with the coaches in the locker room, getting these guys pepped up? Who's the raw, raw speech guy? Cause I got to imagine that you would make a pretty intimidating, bad cop in that situation. <laughs> but it's probably that you probably, uh, pegged me wrong there. I mean, uh, I think Eddie was typically the guys, the guy to get, if you've probably seen his YouTube video, um, before one of the Ireland games. And <laughs> yeah. if you haven't, it's, it's very interesting. So I recommend checking out, but that was before the guys got out on the field and, um, 
my approach is typically to to get them thinking positively and about all the good things that they do and remind them of uh, a few key points that would be key to our performance as a pack of forwards throughout the game. Dave, the lineout operated, it, it operated really well. I mean, better than it had in the, in the past, what were the keys to that? And, and, uh, especially defensively against Russia, it, um, you know, probably saved you. Yeah. I think, uh, there's, there's a number of things there. Again, we get back to the fact that we were together quite a bit, but, there was a there's a core group of guys that were involved in in this um, lineout we put together back in 2009. Um, some of the some of it was the simplicity of our approach, I believe, in the sense of um, we we would change our spacing in the lineout, but we didn't change where guys were. So as much as it looked like we had all these different formations, we really to us it was only one, and we were changing our spacing. So. We were able to give it a lot of different looks, and um, but only have a, a limited number of calls, and so I think that was um, very useful. And then uh, we, we we try to be ready to go as soon as we get to the line of touch, and I think that's one that you know we we don't go through twenty different calls with lots of syllables. We have single syllable one call right when we get to the line, um, and, and it's based on a read. So that's the second part of it that you know, Hayden Smith was typically our, our caller and he, he um, and that, that's part of his job at Saracens and um, he, he's really honed that craft. And I would say secondarily that John Vandergeesen is as good as Hayden, um, but he's at the, we typically like to have him at the front of the line in case we just, you know, he, he's world-class there and he can win the ball against anyone in the world at the front. So if we need, if we've had a couple of, um, shaky lineouts. We can go back to John there at the front, but because of that, it's harder to to read what the opposing defense is doing, and that's why we have Hayden in the middle calling it. So I think those are those are some some keys to to how we operated an attack on defense. There were times when um, against um, where Australia and uh, against Ireland, where we put an extra defender in the um, back line. So we weren't able to defend like we, we normally did, but it gave us a better defense once they won the ball. So, uh, you know, there's always some give and take, and that was our give and take going into those games. Um, but against, as you referenced, against Russia, uh, I think the, the genesis of the defense, when we tried a few different things throughout the 2009 and, and towards the end of 2010, we got to... Um, really figure out what we we like to do defensively, and we had some pretty good cues that we stuck to. Um, and uh, so guys were able to over the last year get a lot of reps at at those cues, and you know look at video in terms of what other teams were gonna do, and then how we reacted over the last year, and really hone in on. Um, and the, and they were very simple, and they we stuck to them. So. Um, it was our system and the guys really took it on board and actually by the Italy game, you know, they, there wasn't a lot of coaching by that point. They, they pretty much knew what they were going to do. Um, we, we, we obviously, obviously very focused on our technique. So we were efficient and that's something we always do. But by the, in terms of our strategy, the guys were pretty locked in 
and uh, it was which was good because we only had one day of training before that game. I want to follow up about the scrum. Uh, you know, obviously that was a was it was a rough a rough thing for the last eighteen months minimum, and and I wanted to know what you thought. But forgetting the past, moving forward, how we can improve that area of play and what people can do to get themselves in in order to be able to play. Now the the fact is, they did scrummage once in a while reasonably well, and in doing that. If they were able to scrummage once in a while reasonably well, consistency was an issue because if you can do it once in a while, you can do it all the time if you can maintain your focus. But I, I just wanted to know what you thought we could do to get better at that and be as consistent as we are in the line out and, and perhaps the kickoff restart when at least when Malifa was kicking it. Right. I think uh, the first thing, and it may be overly simplistic, but I think as a country, we have to make it more important. And, um, you know, that's right from the when, when people start scrummaging on up. You need to think outside the box and think of ways to reward people that that um, make the scrum a priority. And, uh, you know, that that's something further down the, the track here. But in terms of individuals, um, and I've talked to quite a few um, coaches around the world from professional teams to top level international teams. And I, I think the the biggest thing is that uh, I think players need to be responsible for what they bring to the scrum. And I think the best example of in recent times of that is Chris Ossentowski. And uh, I've been talking to him over uh, the last, well, I spoke to him a lot in Wellington and then over the last couple of weeks. And I think, you know, he would admit that when he came into the national team, he was just an okay scrummager. And so my question to him was, you know, and I had an idea, but I wanted to hear it straight from the horse's mouth was, Chris, how did you go about changing what you brought to the scrum and, and becoming a very effective scrummager? And his base... The main thing, one of the main things he said was that he had three things that he really woke, work, worked on. First one was his setup. So just getting into his stance prior to the, the scrum engage. Next, his, his pushing position and actually working his pushing position um, at, in a mirror if he could so that he could self-correct himself. And, he, and then the, the third was his speed of engagement. So he worked all these three things on his own and relentlessly. So he did reps upon reps every day. And I'm probably saying the wrong numbers, but say he did 50 reps a day. Then, he, you know, that equated to so many a week to so many hundred a month. And over the period of two years, that that's what he contributed to. Um, and I think some, some go back and forth with Bill LeClerc and, terms of what he was actually doing and and they really took on the Mike Cron approach which I think a lot of teams are, are doing right now but I think the the biggest thing there was that Chris took it on board himself to be diligent and daily work on his craft and I think that's something our young props can take on board and and last but not least I think Chris may downplay it but I think he was a, a gym rat, you know, and he was one of the guys you had to probably tell to stay out of, at times, maybe to stay out of the gym. 
um, when, when competition came, but that's what you want. You don't want to have to tell a guy to get in. You want to have to, to try and keep him out. And, uh, then the, then the, there was another interesting one is that sometimes if we're talking about the setup, guys have a trouble getting into positions and it has to do with their flexibility. And I've been really been encouraging our guys to work on that. And, and, uh, in our last conversation with Chris, he said that was a, a big thing for him. He, he started doing yoga and he thought it might just, you know, help his flexibility. And in, in the end, he said a lot of the things they do in yoga classes directly relate a lot of the positions they get you into, um, and, and which would re- relate to your flexibility and your core, uh, are directly related to some of the things they do in yoga classes. So he actually did quite a bit of that from what he told me. Dave, we when we're talking about the scrum, we talk. We usually end up talking about the front row. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, second row players can do to I- improve this aspect of play for the USA? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> that that's another thing um, uh, that the front row it's it's kind of synonymous to uh, maybe a, a quarterback where they get all the credit and. And most of the blame so they get all the credit when things go right and they get the blame when things go wrong and obviously that's a big part of the puzzle but it's not the only one and the, and the second rows certainly bring a lot to the equation and uh, obviously if we go right back to what we just talked about it's important that they get rep upon rep on getting used to their setup so that it comes second nature and and probably what i've missed upon earlier is that if, if you're thinking about where your feet need to be and it's not in muscle memory, you know, if we're talking about front row or any position, then whatever strategy you're trying to employ is not really going to work in the scrum because you're, you're thinking about it. So we need to get to the point of the basics are wrapped into muscle memory and then we can really focus on bringing something to the scrum. And so second row wise, um, I think some of the biggest things, you know, we need all those we need the, the guys to be, you have to have a base of strength and power. So that's before you get to working on your scrummaging and then, um, that they're set up so that they're balanced and they're not uh, leaning too far forward or, or too far back. And, uh, actually sometimes, um, we ran into trouble with guys being too low. And the mean, what I mean by that is they'll, they'll typically in the second row, you have to put a foot forward when you get in a lower position, if you're balanced and then to get that foot back to scrimmage properly, you have to, your butt has to stand up and then on engage, we get caught cause you're up in the air and, the, and both feet aren't on the ground. And if they are, you're not in a good pushing position cause your butt up in the air. So we start actually with their feet a little bit closer together and a little higher. And, um, that's been, it's, it's been a challenge because guys aren't used to it, but I think that's a, a huge point so that, you can get the foot that's put forward back faster and into a good pushing position with your back flat and, and really locked onto that prop so that he doesn't go anywhere without you. Dave, one of your roles um, outside of just being a, a pack coach is, as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is making these um, some of these highlight videos and sending them overseas and getting them in front of the eyes of coaches and, and guys to help get um, pro contracts. Uh, after this World Cup, we haven't exactly had a rash of, of guys getting signed, um, and we've got less now than we had pre-World Cup, um, perhaps in the spring, playing professionally overseas. Is that is there a pattern? Is there a reason? 
If so, is it worrisome? Why do you think that we don't have as many? And do you think it'll correct itself? Or, or what's your take on that issue? Uh, well, I think, first of all, it's always a challenge uh, for our guys in terms of a contract because of the passport issue. So that's the first hurdle you have to overcome. And then now, once you, if you do clear that hurdle of you know vying for a spot, you're now competing with um, a numerous players from from mostly uh, from the Tri Nations countries. So you know who are very good and experienced, and 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 you know maybe just outside of a international cap, but they're still very you know quality players. So that that's you know always been the case. Recently, as you referenced. Um, you know, we, we've just come out of right into the middle. Of, you know, the thing that's going on is the Northern Hemisphere season. So these rosters are always already put in place. And so it's basically waiting for somebody to get hurt to get an opportunity. And, and uh, you know, there, there's probably a couple exceptions where teams were holding off to see what's available after the, after the World Cup. And uh, we're certainly getting to that point. But I think by and large is – you know the the rosters are set, and those 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 opportunities that come up are a lot of people that you know performed in the World Cup, not just our country, but a lot of players out there looking for contracts. Um, following up on that, you know, in 2007, obviously Z made the great play and then got a contract out of it, has turned into a you know a long term career so far. At least I know he resigned uh, sometime in the last 12 months. Um, for an extension with beer eats but that model is that's that's kind of the exception not the rule right where you go having a, a great play in the world cup people see how good you are and then you get uh, a career started out of it is that is that would, would you agree that that's more of the exception than the rule and he's just kind of a um you know a lucky guy to have been able to pull that off because like i get the feeling that there are some american guys looking at that kind of hoping to be hoping for it to pan out as a model yeah, I don't know if it's a model. I mean, certainly that was an exceptional play, but um, part of that being an exceptional play is that he, on that one instance, and, and I know he did it more, but that was the one that people remember, is he, he showcased that he has world-class speed, you know, and he can't coach that. <laughs> so that's what that's how, that's how why Z is so such in demand, and now he's combined that world-class speed with becoming a a very good player now, a, a good rugby player on top of that. So certainly that um, is, is, you know, those guys don't come along every day. And so, yeah, I don't think that one is a model. Now, I think we had some exceptional performances from some of our guys at the at the World Cup that are looking to, to get over there. And um, I, as I said before, it's more about the timing of the, the whole thing and, trying to find the right the guys just we, we have to try to match up the right opportunity when it comes with the right player and uh, there's a lot of competition out there and so once those positions come open there you know it's a challenge to get into them Dave I had a I wanted to follow up on something you said earlier that the Italy game that you had one day to prepare it it seems to me like the there were two teams selected that were different between the um between Italy and Australia, yeah. and your longest period of preparation time was was in between the Russia game and the Australia game, yeah. and it would have seemed to me sensible to train those guys 
to prepare for Italy that entire time while they were to, to, to have a one-day preparation for what was, quote-unquote, you know, outside of Russia, the biggest game. It didn't yeah. – that doesn't make a lot of sense. Is that what happened? Uh, well, it's probably a bit of semantics there. One day in that week to, to train for that. Now, certainly that set of forwards uh, went and did some reps on their own uh, outside of that team prep. But then again – uh, we had a number of guys that were on the bench also uh, in the build-up to Australia. So I'm just talking in terms of our overall team, getting everyone in the team working our overall strategy. Uh, the Working on the scrum and, and line-out and things like that were certainly things that we did during that uh, Australia week. But the priority was on the team to play Australia. How much talk was there, Dave? You talk about the, the prep time. I think for me that was a huge issue this year, um, this being the first World Cup I truly paid attention to. But how much talk was there over there? I, I don't know that it was publicized as much as it could have been, even though it did get obviously some ink and, and some um, some airtime. But was that one of the major topics between coaches, between um, nations, just how uh, you know un, unfair basically the, that – those different lead times were and how much that needed to change. Was that a huge topic of conversation? Uh, I guess, I mean, not, I wouldn't say it was between coaches. Uh, I think we knew what it was going in for quite a while. So it just is what it was, what it was. And you know, we were prepared, we, you know, we were prepared going in that that was how it was going to be. And we just got on with it. And that's what you had to do. Um, I think there were talk, and probably what you guys would probably know more about this than me, so you pay more attention to the media. But I assume that I did. I did notice here and there that the media was talking about it, um, and maybe some coaches or players got into the fray with other teams. But I think by and large, we uh, just got down to the business of getting on with the preparation that we had. Um, so that's that was really how we dealt with it. We can be pretty slow, the media, to catch on to things. So We actually have to see it sometimes before we realize it's going to happen. All right, so slow, in fact, that we have to take a break and catch our breath. So we will be right back with Dave Hodges on Rugby Matrix America. Hey, fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots. Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Hey, don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10th through 12th, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA 7's International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top International 7s teams to the American Stop on the World Series circuit. It's three days of thrilling action. Go to USA7s.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA7s. Presented by Stations Casinos, the LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers 7s and 15s playing opportunities for all levels. Go to LVIRugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA7s deals and special rates on Stations Casinos Hotels. Once again, go to LVIRugby.com for details. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge is now available for pre-order at GameStop and the store at GameShark.com. 
Order now and get a free t-shirt with pre-orders. GamesRadar says the game looks fantastic and plays smoothly. A long time coming and worth the wait. Get your copy today and get the game hailed by GamerFusion as a great experience. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge offers an unrivaled Xbox 360 rugby experience. Featuring 93 teams and 31 stadiums, online leaderboards, in-game Dolby Digital, and multiplayer voice chat. Buy now and be among the first to play this acclaimed game and get a free rugby t-shirt. Check out GameStop, GameShark.com, and check out the ad on our main page at RugbyMag.com for more. Okay, we are back, and... um, Great questions from Bruce and Pat, and I'm going to jump in because I actually get to ask a question because I have one written down. But uh, back to talking about players overseas, Dave, and you you played at Slanethley in Wales for seven years, and you have a, a great network and connections in that country, and yet there really aren't a lot of uh, – the, the, there isn't anybody at the higher level in, in from America who's playing in Wales. Mm-hmm. And um, and and that's and and we even have a, a former USA coach coaching in Wales and Scott Johnson. Uh, why is it so difficult to get players placed in Wales right now? I think it just gets down to less opportunity, and you know they they only have four regions now, um, and that's you know there's certainly a lot more teams in in the English Premiership, and um, so that's where that in terms of they have four teams and they use that. You know, the the Welsh Rugby Union puts a lot of money into those teams, and they, you know, they do. I know teams like the Ospreys do have a number of foreign players, but again, they those are some pretty talented guys coming from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so there's just not a lot of opportunity. There's four teams, limited number of foreign spots per team, and also a lot of those teams have budget issues. You know, Clenethley just built a stadium. And um, they're paying that off, and they're not. They're, they've gone down the road of developing local talent versus bringing in. No, I, I, again, they do have foreign players, but it's a limited number, and they have a limited budget, and so they're they're more focused on bringing players up in their region through the system, and so that's the challenge there in Wales. Okay, well, if with that with that in mind, what can we do domestically to? put players in a position to compete on an international level? Well, that's a... <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, that's... Oh, right. we, we, don't, we, don't have, we don't have five hours to talk about it, right? So, um, but... Yeah, I mean, I think from an overall uh, perspective, we have to do, do better at bringing those players um, up through our system and, and making our teams better so that as guys come to the team, they come with a set of skills and knowledge uh, that that can be readily plugged into a system and, and, and perform better. You know, that's – but there's a lot of moving parts to getting that done. Um, it's a massive country, and it's a, it's a huge challenge, and it's why we, you know, it's why we come to work every day at, at USA Rugby and, and what gets us out of bed and trying to get that done. But it's certainly – you know, <laughs> improving our players and our competitions is a is a massive challenge and something that you know there's probably a lot of different things that we can do uh, to get that done. Um, I think from from my perspective, you know, I think some inter 
I'd like to see facilitate a little bit more if I'm if I'm lucky enough to stay around here. Uh, a little more interaction with the coaches that want the interaction and um, explain to them what we're trying to do and then try to hear what they're trying to do, and especially those those teams that are trying to be high-performance teams. And so now that we, we get some back and forth and, and understanding of uh, our approach and the team and, and they can take some of that on board, we certainly don't want to stifle creativity in, in any way in the sense of, you know, this is, we only play one way throughout America. I think that's what makes our country great. And so we want to bring some creativity to the board, but we also want them to know this is how we're doing things. And if we have some best practices that can help them, I'd like to really see that um, pushed on down if we can. Now with those ideas in mind and with that um, approach in mind, we know that uh, Eddie O'Sullivan's contract is up at the end of the year. We don't know if he's coming back or not, but, um, assuming he's not, are you a candidate for the national team head coach job? Well, I think at, at this point in time, Eddie is the head coach and his contract is, from what I understand, runs until um, the end of the year. And, you know, for right now, I work for USA Rugby and I'm the, I'm the forwards coach. And so at, at this point, that's what I'm doing and getting down to uh, the business of. And, and right now that's, what we're what I'd like to leave it at, I guess. Yeah, Dave. Um, on that on that professionalism thing, and this was one of my this was one of the things that I really thought was, you know, almost foolish, going into the World Cup is that we, you know, when when we had an opportunity to play Saracens, where they would have been able to get a look in front of a Premiership club, we, you know, we played a second team. When we had an opportunity against Scotland A, to play a top team and, and maybe get guys a look to go into into the uh, the, the Robo 12 that we did we played a second team and where we have a professional player our, our, our most probably at least famous professional player in Todd Clever in Japan we played a second team and and I think that we didn't give our players the opportunity to play in front of teams and, and against England Saxons as well and we didn't give our players the opportunity to play against teams that were going to give them an opportunity to get professional contracts. And I think that that's part of the problem too. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Um, yeah, I think the challenge is, you know, the, the main thing is about the overall strategy of the team and the performance of the team. Um, so in, in that sense, you know, we're not picking teams based on trying to get guys contracts. I, I guess that's the, the first thing. Um, you know, if you want to consider the, the part where you could say, yeah, well, should we have played the, uh, throughout the last year? Should we have not chopped and changed the team as much? Um, you know, what point do we solidify the team and, and go with those guys? Um, but then again, once you do that, then you get some injuries and the, the guys that are coming back up aren't as prepared. So there's a, you know, that, that, I think that's a legitimate question as to when do you um, back the, what you think is the first team and, and keep those guys on the field. So, you know, it's certainly, you know, I know a lot of our players and it's, it's up to them whether, you know, what they want to do in the sense of, going overseas or not we're not mandating that guys go and play uh we, we want them to seek out the best competition they can but 
for some of them that may be here. And so for, but a lot of guys do desire to go overseas and, um, you know, in terms of, uh, the performances and putting guys on the field to get contracts. It's not really, uh, I don't know if I answered your question properly, but now it's more, it was more a matter of they were tough games and, and they were opportunities for our players to be able to play against quote unquote, the best. And, and from my perspective, they, it was taken away from them so that they can play Portugal. And, and I, you know, while I understand the rankings test thing, we had already qualified for the World Cup test. The test match against Portugal was irrelevant. And, and I think that that's what that's kind of where I'm going. And, and, and then also where I'm going is they didn't get the chance to play Australia. And I understand that, you know, that it, it's it's difficult to, you know, try to, you know, you want to put your best foot forward against Italy, but it really seems like that the preparation for that whole nine or 11 day period in between those games was focused on Australia and we didn't prepare for Italy and just didn't seem like if the strategy didn't seem to have, to have, um, you know, it probably really wasn't particularly well thought out (laughs) by Eddie. I think it doesn't, that seems to me anyway, it it doesn't, doesn't seem like it was well thought out. I think when you say the, uh, I mean, Again, we're getting back to a few things here in terms of wording to say that we didn't prepare for Italy is not true. I mean, the staff was already you know, that that's what you have to do once you start getting to the end of the week and you have a game coming up the next week. You're preparing for that. And, you know, I think the, uh, the certainly there were the guys that weren't once we knew their guys we named the team and they weren't involved. There were guys preparing for uh, Italy. So to say we weren't preparing, I think a bit of a misnomer. What, what I'm getting to is that getting that 15 on the field training together um, with an overall tactical approach was the week of Italy game. Now we had different units things with the forwards, and the, you know certainly our we were going with the the guys. We had eight forwards against eight forwards, so we were able to work those guys that were playing, preparing for the the Italy week. Um, you know, but to say, you know, the Japan game is a bit of a different thing. They they weren't going to play against the best Japanese team um, in that game. Uh, Which, if you use the rankings test thought, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here. But if you use the rankings test thing, it's still a rankings test. And, and the reason we didn't play these other teams is because they weren't rankings test. And we had one and we essentially didn't put our best foot forward. And so it seemed like the strategy seemed to be disjointed through the whole thing. And I think that the players played punched above their weight, given the, you know, the overall strategy of what happened from, you know, the way Eddie did it, and, you know, and, and, you know, and I, and I know it was his call. So, you know, I'm, 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 that's where I'm laying the blame there. I, I just doesn't seem like the strategy, the CEO of the operation seem to have strategies that were disjointed. And I think it was a disservice to the players. A lot of, you know, we, we have heated debate, which you need in, in these, uh, uh, in terms of the team that we select. And, uh, you know, it, the, the Australia one was um, very hotly contested. I can tell you that right now. Um, and, but in the in the end, that was what the decision was. And you're right that overall, it's uh, you know 
Eddie is the, the head of the ship and he makes the, the overall call. And there, but I don't really want to get into, you know, what was, who was feeling what or where it was, but those, um, those selection meetings and, and as they should, it's, it's hugely important for, you know, we don't in this, you know, I hope going, we'd always have this approach in this country that we don't waste caps. And, you know, if someone's going to get on that field, they're deserving of it. So it's important that those selection meetings are, are contested and, and, and they're beat up in terms of the choices and that you leave no stone unturned. So I, you know, I can't really comment on, I don't want to get into the inner workings of how they, how they happened, but just to let you know, I mean, we did certainly discuss those and, and they were um, debated, debated and debated. And then if there's a, there's a call to be made, that's um, Eddie as the, as the head guy to make the call. That's fair. Okay. Well, here's my softball question. Um, we didn't talk much about the um, the internal game, the American game, the domestic game. Obviously, that's a large part of the puzzle. We want to get guys playing overseas, but um, as it is, they, they all can't. Did you see much merit? In, in the Glendale game, when you guys played them warming up in a midweek game, was the first game that I can remember or I could find record of, of really a United States select side playing against a true club side. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing. We play, you know, international club sides like Saracens, like Munster, obviously. But uh, did you find merit in that, that Glendale game? Was it worthwhile? Um, is it something that you think would be worthwhile doing again with Glendale or with somebody else? Um, I think it was worthwhile at that point. Uh, I think the timing of it wasn't ideal. Uh, it took away, you know, it, it's just challenging to t prepare. And essentially that week we were preparing two teams. And uh, so I would say I would – and if I had my druthers going forward, I wouldn't have a, uh, a completely separate midweek game. Um, having said that, I know some of the tours are going toward, back towards playing midweek games um, in, the, in the test windows. But I think for us, yeah, it was the timing wasn't ideal, but the, the exercise was in the sense of we got to see some guys that because we had an expanded roster at that point. Um, beyond uh, the 30 that we could take in the World Cup. We got to see some guys operate in our system. Um, and that for that point, it was useful. Uh, going forward, I think more to the point is of uh, getting teams in training and working through certain scenarios. Um, as much as you, even if you have enough numbers, it's always, I think it's generally better to go against a somebody that's not part of your group as long as they're comp they're competent enough to give you a decent look does it make sense to to perhaps put on the calendar uh, a usa versus the world type game where it's uh, a, you know a, a a team of of domestic based players from overseas something like that um that then you bring in that that experience if not necessarily they're not necessarily 22 year old up and comers but they're very experienced and savvy opponents. I think any time that you can um, seek out world-class competition for your team, um, provided that it's in the the right part of the calendar year, competition-wise, is is a good thing. You know, um, depending on the makeup of our team and things like that, it, that's where you get into to issues of um, you know if you if you have a heavy assembly year 
and then you just pull a game together in the middle with uh, where guys are already, you know, especially our guys that are tearing off the necktie and, and going to training, the guy, domestic guys that have real jobs. If you, if you put a, something in right in the middle, that's going to challenge their time away. That's the, the difficulty. So it has to be at the right times and you have to manage um, their time away as well. But uh, overall, if it's in your competition cycle, it, it, it grouped up in with um, maybe some tests and uh, in lead into tests, I think that would be a good thing. And as you said, there's a lot of questions going on about the, the type of competition the, the USA national team is going to be facing, the, the change in the tours. And it looks like uh, the Eagles are going to host uh, three games in the in the summer and maybe play away at Canada and then then maybe go on tour whether you have midweek games things like that but uh any any coach looking ahead to this type of schedule where you have you, you perhaps a little bit more defined competition you you're playing test matches you also have midweek games perhaps you you and then you've got the opportunity to come up with a plan for 2 3 4 years uh on how to coach up the next wave of players uh, there's really a, there's a huge amount of planning going on, perhaps more more work off the field than there is on the field. Yeah, I think um, you know, speaking, of, you know, you said two, three, or four years. For us, it's two years really that we have to qualify in two years. So there's no, you know, as much as you're trying to talk about guys for the next World Cup, the the plan right now should be qualify in two years time and so that's got to be there's not a you know you don't have as much as you look at the cycle you go wow you got four years to really you know hone things in no you got you got a little less than two years now to make sure you qualify that's priority number one so I think that's um that's the the first thing I'd say in terms of building towards that next one and uh in terms of getting the plans right um, I'm trying to, you know, we, we've instituted uh, a video sharing policy with that was, I think, pretty successful with the College Premier League and uh, the second year for the Super League last year. And I think we can um, find some interesting ways to get a lot more done in terms of our, our talent identification and um, use that video and, and get some interns in here and, and code up. Um, all the players in those leagues, not necessarily um, grade them, but just when they're involved. So if you come to me as, you know, the coach of a college team and say, hey, um, you know, John Smith is the guy we really think going forward. Now I have, I can s seamlessly go and pull all of his moments and watch that, get, get a feel for how he plays pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and that would be taking place anyway, but if it's just one of those checks and balances where if someone comes to you, you don't have to go back through and try to find a game and it's already right there for you. So I think those are some things we can do to really identify. Now, obviously um, there's guys that fall outside the, that are very good players that fall outside the super league and the college premier league. And so those would have to be back to the normal way of, of sending in video and we break it down and take a look and see if we think they can play. But I think, you know, that's a good start anyway. Well, you, uh, you preempted my follow-up question to that, but the, we do have an issue in this country that players still are coming up from, from, for want of a better term, I guess, backwater uh, 
uh, colleges or 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 clubs, players who come from from kind of nowhere. And I and and you look at the the Eagles team now, and uh, and Paul Emmerich came from University of Northern Iowa, and uh, John Vandergeesen played at Idaho. These are not um, premier colleges. They have to be found somewhere. We don't have a select side competition right now. Um, what 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 can can be done? Is it is it just a, a case of sending in tape or, or advocating for your player, or or should there be some kind of competitive opportunity for for guys who are who are not in the Super League, not in major D one clubs, or not in major uh, colleges? Yeah, good question. Um, I think. The, you know, if we look at what the status quo is at the moment, uh, a guy like Paul Emmerich would have a chance to possibly play in the All-Americans. That's, you know, over our history, the All-Americans have put a lot of players on our team. Um, guy, you know, guys that we've seen play at that level that may not have been recognized before. So I think that's been a, a very exceptional tool for us uh, is it the be-all, end-all? No, we certainly need to have some other ways of identifying players. Um, you know, I think the, the college Premier League has been a good thing, but as you say, there certainly are some guys, and maybe there's a competition in, that we could uh, get going. You know, that's that's more of an overall strategic decision for the people here um, in charge of those competitions. But it might be an interesting discussion if there's a. Um, a competition for the, the people that wouldn't be able to be selected uh, or seen in the college premier league that they could play a uh, couple of games at the end of the season and uh, the best and brightest, but you're still getting down to probably sending in video to a selector who would um, then put those guys on that team. So I think you still have some similar challenges and go through similar processes uh, without that competition going forward. Uh, but you know, I think it's 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 a topic of discussion, and it's certainly something um, that's a challenge when we don't have a competition. But then again, something if we're talking, to, I know I think you're probably referencing our old all-star competition. You know, what right. those were the the challenge for those were, yeah, you get to see a guy, but it's it's fairly limited in scope in the sense of, you know, can you can you repeat that performance? Did you just have a happen to have a decent day? You know, so it's as much as it was useful, you have to balance it versus how useful was it versus the budget you have to pull it off. And, you know, how many guys did you pull out of that? So I think that's a just to say overall, I think you have to really examine it and say how useful was it and how much did it cost? And is that something that we can get done? And this spills over then into uh, how a, a national team coach and and even national team assistant coaches contribute to the high performance planning because if you have i mean there has to be a two-way street of discussing what is what does the national team need what do players require you having played domestically uh in the united states and also played overseas um you know what it's like for for players to deal with this this kind of schedule so you can have input there that there has to be a, a conversation it's not just somebody some high performance director sitting in boulder somewhere saying this is how it is um yeah i mean i guess i agree with your i didn't know if there's a question there but I, overall I, <laughs> I agree not really a question i don't i don't, I don't think talent identification 
at the senior level is is a big issue. I mean, I think that the guys are identified and in general, you know, given outside of a few people, every single person who should have been identified and given a look was. You know, whether or not you agree with the final 30, you know, within the final 40 or 50, you basically had everybody that you wanted and, and the choices were made. Yeah, but and, yeah, but Bruce, looking looking ahead, I just don't I just don't see how someone like John Vandergeesen makes this team in four years the way things are set up right now. Uh, he made the team based on uh, pathways that don't don't really exist. I'm talking about the National All Star Championship. Not that it that's the be all and end all. I got problems it's, with it's it. A but, di- it's a different world. Yeah it's a, it's, it's a different it's a world, different world and, and, and it's a different world and it, it Video is far more readily available. True. Email True. and fu- e- email and cell phones are, are way more prominent than they were. I mean, it's just a different world. Well, I, I, and, I, and I use and, I you know, you're not sending in a VHS myself, anymore. But but you know, I, I think that I think that your you, I think that your point is more well taken for high school and youth kids, and 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 possibly some some lower division college kids. But outside of that, I think that these guys got it right. In terms of identifying the senior men's players, and and also identifying guys who wanted to who wanted to be part of the program, there's a difference between hey man I made the Eagles and then quitting and giving up and and going moving on and finding guys who are really serious about trying to be very good Eagles, and I think that that's what these guys found dedicated players. Bruce, I, I can't. Listen, if you're if you're if you're a really good college player or you know you're a really good rugby player, it's not that hard to figure out the Super League exists and go find a way to play in it. And if you make your way to a Super League city from somewhere in America where you didn't live, um, you definitely have the dedication factor. But to pretend like we know there isn't a Division One or Division Two um, guy out there who has a talent to play on the Eagles would be um, ridiculous because we we don't know all the players out there. So to well, say no, that we know that they got it right would be assuming that you know. What else is out there that wasn't seen? Well, I think that part of it is that it becomes very difficult for those players to make that massive of a step up straight away without making mistakes that can cost you games. So I think that, you know, even when you identify that guy, you're almost identifying him to give him to give him a little bit of um, advice is to say you're going to have to go play here for us to further consider you. And I think that that that's where the politics gets into it. I I think it's more in terms of the youth and and the, and and the lower division colleges for the men, they know what to do. Yeah. I I think, I think the lower division colleges is what I was sort of talking about. I think, you know, is is somebody, is there somebody at UW stout in Wisconsin? Who's, who's great. And, and, and and could be somewhere he's 20, 21 or 19. And we've got to do something with them. That's, that's kind of, where I'm going with this, I, w- I wish we could we we could say with confidence that we're taking those kinds of players and putting them somewhere. Now, now, Dave, you were head coach of the All Americans when I think it was James Gillenwater came virtually out of nowhere to play really well for you on tour and end up uh, eventually being captain of the the USA Sevens team. So the All American program still works. Does it work if we change the territorial all-star um tournament for colleges or is does video replace that yeah i don't i mean there's there's benefits to both um by meaning change if you take it out i don't think so 
I think it is, a, you know, again, you got to balance on how many guys come out that per, you know, on average per year. And uh, is it worth the cost? I would say in general for the All-Americans, I think it's been a good tool. Um, you know, that year, you know, James Gilwater and uh, Jarvis Albury were two guys that come to mind that we saw playing in that competition and we really didn't know a lot about at that point. Um, so, and, and that was before our, <clears throat> I believe our, you know, college premier divisions take on uh, Division One A name now. Mm-hmm. Um, that was before that competition existed and um so you know jarvis may have been found because i believe he was at arkansas state and they're now in that but uh you know at that point i think it was very good for us and it was useful in terms of finding those guys um but bruce does make a good point there are other ways to get guys um known but i think we have to as opposed to saying well you could we have to have a more systemized approach to making sure that, you know, as much as possible, no stones unturned and we, we comb the length of America for, for players and talk to coaches and that, that guys aren't in the competitions that are getting seen. Dave, if you were to have an ideal setup, for you know within the confines of what we're able to do i mean obviously say oh yeah we'd have a professional league but that that's you know you know that's a money pit but if you would have an ideal setup as to what would be the competitive cycle of how you would want your elite players to do things assuming that the eagles are going to play you know three or four games during the summer and assuming that the eagles are going to play three games during the uh, the first week, second week, and third week in November, which is generally what happens. How would you like to set up the competitive cycle based on that domestically in, com- in competition, or is that something you'd rather think about at a later date? <laughs> well, it's certainly an interesting question. I think the the best part of where we are right now is that we're not, dictated to i mean there's been some competitions and there's a little bit of history i'm not saying that's not the case but if we wanted to create a competition we have a blank slate and in the sense of you know we don't have uh, like you know in england can you imagine trying to change around the premiership and completely overhaul it there's so many there's a lot of money invested there's a lot of time and i mean i know we have the time part but trying to change all that would be a massive underhaul. And I think we can do it. It's still probably a challenge, but we can put in what we feel is we could create a new competition if we felt that was necessary. And the nice thing about it is we can play the number of games we want to play. So we don't, you know, obviously I think the Northern hemisphere plays way too much. You know, just to give you an example back, uh, one of the, one of the years, um, when uh, I was playing for Clint Athlete, it was 50 games one year combined with my international. So <laughs> to play a contact sport that much. Now, I don't think that's typical when guys play that much, but there's certainly a lot of guys playing well over 30 games. And I think that's probably too much. It's probably somewhere between, you know, I think ideal, I would say ideally between um, just under 20 to 25 games would be a great number. So we can create a competition and say, try to figure out when the best time in the calendar year to lead into a, 
you know, an international season is and say, well, this is the number of games we're going to play because the, the, the best player is going to play this many international games. He's going to play four or five international games and, and with, you know, so many domestic games and he's right at 20. And now we can manage our guys and they have longer careers and, and things like that. So ideally that would, um, you know, if you could create something where guys would play at a high level domestically and, you know, be challenged and, and uh, come into an, the next level better prepared. I think, you know, that's our advantage is that we can create something um, or, or modify something that we have and play the right number of games for us. Perfect. Okay, we will be right back with Dave Hodges on Rugby Matrix America. Hey, fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs, whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots. Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Hey, don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10th through 12th, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA 7's International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top International 7s teams to the American Stop on the World Series circuit. It's three days of thrilling action. Go to USA7s.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA 7s. Presented by Stations Casinos, the LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers sevens and fifteens playing opportunities for all levels. Go to LVIRugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA Sevens deals and special rates on Stations Casinos Hotels. Once again, go to LVIRugby.com for details. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge is now available for pre-order at GameStop and the store at GameShark.com. Order now and get a free t-shirt with pre-orders. Games Radar says the game looks fantastic and plays smoothly. A long time coming and worth the wait. Get your copy today and get the game hailed by GamerFusion as a great experience. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge offers an unrivaled Xbox 360 rugby experience. Featuring 93 teams and 31 stadiums, online leaderboards, in-game Dolby Digital, and multiplayer voice chat. Buy now and be among the first to play this acclaimed game and get a free rugby t-shirt. Check out GameStop, GameShark.com, and check out the ad on our main page at RugbyMag.com for more. Okay, we are back, and Dave, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and I know you've still got... uh, some some work to do and and you probably have uh end of year reports and you're still as you said keeping track of of players uh players videos and you're working on those highlight videos and and seeing if you can help them uh get looked at overseas yeah and there's uh there's plenty of things to do here but it was uh enjoyable to come on and uh discuss you know any anytime rugby is the topic i love to talk about it so enjoyed speaking with you all and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime dave i i personally appreciate your candor because i know that uh you know i didn't necessarily give the at least at some points during the interview some of the easiest questions to answer and i thought that you answered them um very well and 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 very professionally i do appreciate that and i think the listeners will too and i enjoyed uh being uh 
the Dave Hodges to Bruce McLean's Eddie O'Sullivan on those questions as well. So thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, again, thanks again. And uh, appreciate being on the show and, and, and enjoyed uh, talking with you all. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Dave. And, and thanks a lot, Bruce and Pat. And thanks a lot to the listeners. This is Alex Goff, editor-in-chief of Rugby Mag saying you've been listening to Rugamatrix America. <laughs>